Well, I'm excited to jump back into the Gospel of John, and so if you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 5, John chapter 5, and if you're not in the normal habit of, of bringing your Bible, I want to encourage you to do so. We are every single Sunday walking through texts of Scripture, particularly now as we're back in the Gospel of John, it would be helpful for you to see those things and uh, be able to see the way in which His Word is moving in our lives. Uh, but John chapter 5 this morning will be in verses 1 through 15. If you were to say that someone is paralyzed, you could mean one of, of two things. You could mean that physically, meaning a person is, is unable to move, maybe a portion of their body, a part of their body is unable to move. It could be something from birth or a stroke, a spinal cord injury or a, a broken back, but you would say that to refer to someone who's just part of their body is unable to move. But there's another way that we use that word. We often can refer to someone not physically paralyzed, but somehow emotionally paralyzed. We often say that someone is paralyzed by fear or fear of failure or failure or anxiety or worry or just being overwhelmed. This can be in a super dramatic moment where someone finds themselves in a very serious moment and they feel paralyzed. Or it could be just feeling overwhelmed by how much there is to do and not knowing where to start and just feeling that sense of being paralyzed. And we use this word to refer to both of those things, but they are different, aren't they? I mean, the truth is, one of those is the inability to move. The other one is more often just the unwillingness to move. When we say someone's paralyzed with anxiety, it doesn't normally mean that they're absolutely physically unable to do anything. It means that they're maybe unwilling to do something. You see, one is a physical impossibility, the other one just makes you feel as if it's physically impossible. Our story this morning is a sad one. It's a sad one because it's the story of a, of a paralyzed man who is paralyzed in both of those ways. There are four scenes in this story and they move from sad all the way to sadder. It's a story though that does point us in the direction John always wants to point us. He says everything he's writing in John 20, 31 is that we might believe and in believing have life in his name. So as we get back into the gospel of John, just remember every single thing John tells us and every story he gives us, he gives us because he wants us to one, believe in Jesus and then two, in believing have life. John is very concerned that we might know the fullness of life, the abundant life that Jesus has for us. He doesn't want us just to taste it. He wants us to get the fullness of abundant life in Jesus. And the reason that's important is because when John tells a story like this, it's always a little bit different than the other gospel writers. John doesn't just tell us a story. He tells us a story to lead us to believe and to have life. And so every story John telling us is leading us somewhere. And it's really leading all of us to life in Jesus. But scene one of this story really is sad. It says in verse 1 that after this, there was a feast of the Jews and, the Jesus, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we imagine the scene once again, Jesus going to Jerusalem. There's a feast. It means it's a very busy time of the year. So the streets are filled. Uh, the markets are filled. This is the times in which the most people come to Jerusalem. So in a very busy moment, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And verse 2 actually paints for us a beautiful scene. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic called Bethesda, 
which has five roofed colonnades. And so right there, we just kind of picture this in our mind. We have to do this with the Gospels. Uh, it's some artisan spring, some beautiful freshwater pool that is there. And then surrounding the pool are these huge, beautiful stone, large, tall columns. And on top of those columns are roofs, some shelter. And so there's five of those. There's five of these column structures, most likely surrounding the pool and a roof on top of them. And the reason that's there is because this is a place that it's intended for you to come and to sit and, and to relax and to get a break from the shade. And certainly in this climate, in this context, it would be a great relief to have somewhere to go to a freshwater pool and to be able to sit in the shade and just relax and enjoy those moments. And so that's exactly the picture that is painted for us there. There has been the creation of these five roofed colonnades just to rest and to sit, to put your feet in the water, to enjoy the water. And while it seems like a beautiful scene, the reality is it does get very sad in verse 3. It says that in these, in these means, in these roofed colonnades, and so under these roofed colonnades, there is lying there a multitude of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. It's the only place John uses this word, multitudes, and in his gospel, the other gospels use it, it it always refers to almost a number beyond what you can count, a, a number that is extremely large, a number that maybe cannot be contained. And so when we talk about a multitude of people, it just means an overwhelming number of people. Jesus sees the multitudes and feels compassion. There is this overwhelming feeling he has as he sees the amount of people. And so here's this place that is intended to be a place to rest and to sit and to enjoy, to relax that is filled with a multitude of people with some kind of physical disabilities. And so if you were to not know that and you were to go there, uh, you wouldn't really be able to sit, you wouldn't be able to walk, uh, you wouldn't really be able to stand much place. If you were, you're kind of weaving out of all of these people. There wouldn't be a place there to rest. There's something about that scene that is, is sad, that, that there are all of those that have been left there in hopes that something might happen there. And you say, well, well, why are they there? Why would you have there a, a multitude of the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed that have, that have been there? Well, it is hard to imagine, but there is a reason. And I think about the sadness of this, and, and I think about the fact that when I was in high school, I went and visited an orphanage in Romania, and I felt the feeling that you must feel when you see a scene like this. These kind of really old buildings with no modern conveniences and then all over the ground outside. I'm talking all over the ground outside are just a multitude of children with nothing on but an old diaper. And you just wonder who's going to get these kids and who's going to care for these kids. And there's a few women in there that are trying desperately to take care of them. But they're overrun by all the kids that are being brought to them. And you just feel really sad and overwhelmed by this. I think about being many times in old former Yugoslavia and Croatia and uh, Slovenia and Serbia and Montenegro and finding all in those places because of the Balkan Wars, these refugee colonies. And so you would just go to this kind of out place on the outskirts of town and there would just be cardboard and random pieces of wood all put together and thousands of people living in this little place of, of just moderate shelter. Think of the barrios that I've seen in South Africa, I mean South America, and, and the sadness of just multitudes of people living in these impoverished conditions. And so that's the scene you see. And the reason they're there is because they're there for some sense of false hope. They think that maybe being there, they might be healed by those waters. Now, 
I want to point out something that I think you're going to notice, and if you have your Bibles, you'll certainly notice it. And I want to point it out because I don't want it to concern you. It says in verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then it skips in most versions to verse 5. So you go from 3 to 5, and then one man was there. And so you might ask, well, what happened to verse 4? But I don't want this to make us insecure in any way about the reliability of the Word of God. Let me just give a quick explanation. We have thousands of manuscripts of the Bible. There is no ancient text more reliable than the word of God. And I assure you, the more you study that, the more you would come to believe in the reliability of what we have in the word of God. It is overwhelming the amount of evidence that we have. And so you have all these manuscripts, and then you have all these textual critics who spend their lives studying these things. And through generations, they have put together a reliable copy of the word of God. But there are early manuscripts, which are most reliable manuscripts, and then there's some later manuscripts, and oftentimes the later manuscripts will have something that's not in the earlier. There is never a time in which that happens, and it's something about doctrine or something that matters, but it's usually something there that people wonder, well, why is this there in the later ones but not in the early ones? And then you have a case like that here. The reason is this. It's because most likely what happened here is you had this early manuscripts which don't have verse 4. The lighter ones do have that, but that's because there was something added later in most likely in the margins of a text. And the reason that would be added is because they felt that something needed to be explained that wasn't there in the text. And so we would look at it and say, well, John didn't write that, but it was given to us later as some explanation. That's exactly what's here because the ones at some point later copying this down who didn't know early on what John and those would have known that were there thought, maybe this needs some explanation. It really doesn't because the explanation is in verse 7. But if you go down to the bottom of your text, it'll say something like this. It'll say, well, verse 4 would say... They're here because they're waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, that's not true. There wasn't an angel of the Lord that stirred the water, but there was a superstition that that was true. And so all of the medicine in this time was almost all revolving around superstitions. You could do a deep dive into the superstitions in Jesus' day about all the things people believed that would heal them. And this was one of those. It's sad because it wasn't true, but the reality is they had no other hope. They, they had no other way to be healed. And so year after year after year, they would be taken. And you say, why did the waters bubble? Because they were artisan springs, and that's what those springs do. They bubble. But they had created some idea that, well, the reason it's bubbling, an angel stirred it up. And if you get there first, well, you're going to be healed. Well, that's, that's crazy. But it's the only hope they had. And so they were told, hey, there's these springs. And man, if you go there and they bubble and you get there first, maybe you can be healed But it's a false hope. And so there's some sadness there and the multitudes of people that are come because they had no other hope and no other way to be healed. It says in verse 5, something that even becomes more sad, that there was one man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. The average life expectancy for a male in Jesus' day was 40 years. And so here's a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know if he was born that way or if something happened when he was a child, but it had to happen very early. He had to have most likely known no other life but this life because he's been that way for 38 years. What's sad is not just that he's in this condition. Obviously, our heart breaks for anything like that. But even more than that, it tells us in verse 7 that he has no one in, around him to help him. There's something really sad in verse 7. The sick man answered him. We'll get to this in a minute. Sir, I have no one. You just look at those words. I have no one. I have no one. I have no one. 
A lot of people would say this man was most likely a paraplegic and he was unable to move at all. And so most likely his family would have picked him up and would have placed him there on a mat and just left him. We know that they left him because when the water was stirred, he had no one. And so what would happen is when the waters were stirred, everyone else would go and he would try to go, but he couldn't go and he didn't have anybody to help him. And so year after year, he sat there by these pools with this false hope of somehow being healed by these magical waters. And yet no one was ever there to help him. And people just stepped in front of him. Everything about that is sad. Especially the false hope of the superstition. I mean, the multitudes of the sick uh, left there by families waiting and watching for the water to bubble. This man who had no one but just the false hopes that they lived there with day after day after day. It's a sad scene. But it moves from a sad scene to a surprising scene. The second scene is, is surprising. It's surprising because Jesus approached the scene and Jesus would have seen what we all kind of painted for us in our minds, this multitude of the sick. But what's surprising is that Jesus finds one man. It says there was one man that had been there for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, Jesus knew that he had been there a long time. It is an amazing thought that you would walk into a place like this with a multitude of the sick and Jesus stepped over a lot of other people but knew this one man and, and saw this one man. And you say, well, why? Why wouldn't Jesus just go everybody healed? I don't know exactly why. But all I do know is this. If you walk through the ministry of Jesus, what you'll find is that Jesus always reminds us that the kingdom advances one person at a time. There was one man. There was one man. It begins in the beginning of the gospel when he comes and he calls Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And it continues in chapter 3 when he has a conversation with Nicodemus. And you say, Jesus, there's so many people that need a conversation, but he has one with Nicodemus. And, and then it's, it's in chapter 4 when there's so many people to minister to, but Jesus goes out of his way because it's a divine appointment with Samaritan woman at the well. And then it's at the end of chapter 4 when there's one official who has a son that's, that's dying and, and that one official gets the attention of Jesus. And I think it's just a reminder there how often we feel paralyzed by the multitudes and paralyzed by the many in which Jesus just reminds us, hey, my kingdom has always advanced the same way, one person at a time. And we do feel that, don't we? I mean, we, we think about the multitudes of people that need help or the multitude of people that have emotional needs or physical needs or spiritual needs. It feels overwhelming. We feel about the multitudes of unreached, unengaged people groups, over 3,000 unengaged, unreached people groups who have no access to the gospel. And you think, where do you start? What do you do? And the answer is, you start with one. That's what we did. We started with the Naba people in the Himalayan mountains of Nepal. And we just said, well, we're going to get one. And you know what? We got them. And they came to Christ. And there's a church that is there. You say, well, what's what? Well, it's one. And you know what we do then? We go to the next one. And sometimes we feel so paralyzed by the multitudes that we forget the one. And I just love the ministry of Jesus here that just goes to this one man. Surprising, but... That's the way Jesus works. He's doing it this morning in the multitudes of people. He could be speaking to you and ministering to you. But then it gets more surprising because Jesus looks at the man. And he, there he is lying on a mat, unable to move. And he just looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? Well, that almost feels cruel, doesn't it? That's like Jesus in John 4 saying, go get your husband. Well, she's had five husbands. He said, of course he wants, to be, he wants to be healed. He's, 
You know he's been here a long time. You just say you know he's been here a long time. He's by the pool. He's laying on a mat. Of course he wants to be healed. What is Jesus getting at? Well, I think the secret there is in one word, the word be. Do you want to be healed? Because that's an important word for John. He uses often. He uses that word in John chapter 1 verse 14. When he says, and the word became flesh. That's the same word. It not only means be, it means to become something. And dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Talking about Jesus becoming something he previously was not. He was not flesh, but he became flesh. It's used in John 1 verse 12. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you go from an orphan to a child. You become something that you previously were not. You're made into something different. And so when we take the way in which John uses this word, we realize what Jesus is saying to the man is this. Do you want to become something that you're not? Do you want to become made well? Do you want to become new? Do you want to become something that, that you're not? He, he's giving him a deeper question because Jesus is not just interested in his legs. He's interested in his heart. And so by this question, what Jesus is saying is, do you have any desire to become something different? The man really doesn't even know how to respond. He can't even comprehend anything but what he's seen at the moment. And he simply says this. He goes, well, I, I, have, I have no one to put me in the pool because when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. He can't even comprehend that standing right before him is the one that with a word can heal him. He, he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. When Do you want to become new and we understand it in a sense because in John 3, when Jesus speaks about new birth, it's not about physical birth, it's spiritual birth. And in John 4, when he offers the lady a drink, he's not talking about water, he's talking about spiritual birth. And so it is in John chapter 5, this isn't really about being physically healed, it's about something deeper. Jesus wants to know if this man wants to become totally new, become a new creation, become a child of God. And the contrast is so interesting from chapter 4 because in chapter 4, this official hears about Jesus as everyone was hearing about Jesus, particularly in Jerusalem. And those who heard about Jesus went to great lengths to find Jesus and said, Jesus, heal me. This man apparently had not heard about Jesus or had heard and ignored the truth about Jesus. His only hope was to get in the pool instead of saying, well, listen, I, I, I'm trying to find Jesus. I need somebody to heal me. He just says, well, I don't have anybody to put me in the, in the pool. And everything about that is surprising. It's surprising that Jesus sees him. It surprises that Jesus asking that question. It's surprising that this man doesn't even understand that that's Jesus in front of him that has the ability to heal him with a word. It's sad and it moves to surprising and then it moves to, to supernatural. From sad to surprising to supernatural because in one moment there in verse 8, Jesus gives this man three direct commands. Do you see them? He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. You might remember, we spent a lot of time in John 1, and I explained to you the reason that John starts his gospel the way no one else does, and the reason we needed to understand it so well is because John was writing to give us life, and in order for us to believe he could do that, we had to see Jesus as the creator of life. We had to see John 1, that Jesus with just a word spoke everything into existence. You exist because Jesus spoke you into existence. Everything in the created world exists because Jesus spoke it into existence. We need the confidence that the Jesus who created is the Jesus who wants to recreate in us. The Jesus who gave physical life is the Jesus who wants to and can and only can give spiritual life. 
And the reason we need to know that in John 1 is because we're going to come to John 5 and not be surprised that the Jesus who spoke creation into existence can say, get up, take up your bed and walk. Listen to this. And at once, verse 9, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. And at once. The Lord has been stirring something in my heart in this regard this week. The more I think about these verses, I just, I just think about the simplicity of coming to Christ. I've had a number of conversations recently where people have said, I know the gospel. I mean, I know these things. I just, I don't, how would I become a Christian? Like, I don't even know where to start. How would I become a Christian? And the truth is, it's really simple. You acknowledge your sin and your need for a savior. You see Jesus Christ as your savior. And then you ask him to save you. That's it. Like you say, Jesus, I need you to save me. I need the life that only you have. I've tried it myself. I don't have anything. Lord, I need you to save me. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And at once you can be saved. At once you can be saved. If you just call upon the name of the Lord. And I think there's people out there who want to become a Christian. Those ever, nobody's ever told them how. And what I would say is the simplicity of calling upon the name of the Lord and knowing at once you can be saved. You just ask the Lord to save you. I think there's something here about the simplicity of what Jesus does. And he simply says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once he does it. Now, right there at verse 9 after that, this should be a moment of, of astounding joy, shouldn't it? I mean, everything about this makes me smile. I, I, I smile at the kindness of Jesus. I smile at the compassion of Jesus because this man has nothing about him that makes him a candidate to get healed. Except Jesus noticed him and saw him, looked right at him and told him to get up. I love the kindness, the compassion, the love, the grace of Jesus Christ. This should be an incredible moment as Jesus watches this man pick up his pallet and start walking. Think about this. I mean, typically, I mean, typically looking at the other stories in which this happens, the person who gets healed immediately goes and tells everybody. I mean, there's multiple times in which Jesus says, hey, don't, don't tell anybody. My time has not yet come. And they go tell every, anybody. I mean, all the time. And so here's this man who's surrounded by multitudes of people that need Jesus. You'd think he'd step up immediately and go, hey, everybody, look at what just happened to me. You got to get that guy. Go get him. Go get him. Look at what happened. I mean, everything about this should be a moment of incredible joy because of the supernatural work that's been happening. But there is one line here that shows us how this scene moves. It says at the end of verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath. Everything in this passage revolves around that phrase right there. Everything. We'll see this more next week. Everything revolves around that. Because it's setting up the scene for some rising tension in the moment. Some tension between the religious leaders and Jesus. And so the story moves from sad to surprising to supernatural, but then it moves to sadder. It moves to sadder. The final scene of this story is that it's even sadder than the first scene. You see, verse 10 tells us that the Sabbath police are out. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. For 30, they, they had 39 laws, that they, man-made laws that they had created about the Sabbath. And they're out looking for someone who's going to break them. That's why they're there. They're there on the Sabbath as the Sabbath police. I think a lot about one of the greatest human rights issues we have in the world today is the morality police in Muslim nations. Who walk around Muslim streets and look for anyone, any woman who's wearing her hijab in the wrong way and they have the right to punish that woman. If, if, if her head covering is not exactly right, they can imprison her, they can beat her, they can physically assault her because she's not wearing what she's supposed to be wearing in the correct way. 
You can't imagine a context in which that happens. That's normal in most Muslim nations. And verse 10 feels that way to me. You see, the reason they do that is not just because they're concerned with women dressing appropriately. It's because they want to control by fear. That's the deal. They want to control by fear. They want to make everybody terrified of them. And so it is with the religious leaders here. And so they want this man to be terrified. Hey, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to, to be taking up your bed. And that's, that's sad. But what's even sadder in verse 11 is this. The man answered, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. You would think at that moment they'd go, wait, what'd you say? Well, the man who healed me, well, what do you mean? To which this man would say, guys, you know me. For 38 years I've been here. You know, you step over me every day. You walk by me every day. This man goes directly back to the temple in a moment. They knew him. They knew his family. They knew his circumstance. If they didn't, he wouldn't have gone directly back to the temple. He was one of them. But, but the reality is they didn't care about people. That's the problem. They had stepped over here every day. They'd never done anything to help him. You would think that if they really loved him, I mean, if this was a, a good church, someone there would have picked him up and helped him get to the water if that's what they believed was going to help. But no one cared about him. So the saddest part is the fact that he's got these Sabbath police that are out trying to control him by fear. They don't care about his healing. Verse 11 says that the man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. And so the man, listen, is so paralyzed by fear of these religious leaders, he just blames someone else. Listen, I didn't, I didn't, I'm only doing it because that guy told me to do it. So I want you to get this feeling of what's happening in the text. He's immediately starting to blame. Well, I, I just, the guy told me to do it. To which they say in verse 12, who is this man? Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Who is this? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Talking about sadder, he, he couldn't even tell who it is that, that did this for him. And this man doesn't go to find Jesus. There's no indication that this man ever went to find Jesus. Wouldn't you think you'd go to find Jesus? Not only because of your own Thanksgiving, but the fact that you know hundreds of other people who need the same thing, but he never goes and finds Jesus. But verse 14 tells us Jesus goes and finds him. Look at what it says. It, it says that afterwards, Jesus found him. Jesus found him. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. See, I told you to get up and you're up. Look, you're well. So sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I don't believe here that there is a connection that Jesus is making between this man's illness and sin that he had committed. We looked at it last week. There are people who are sick because of unconfessed sin. We know this Psalm 32. I don't think that's the connection. I think what Jesus is doing is reminding us the point has always been more than physical healing. The point is always that what Jesus wanted to do is heal this man's heart. He wanted to bring him to eternal life. And so he is inviting him into this new relationship with Jesus. He says, listen, sin no more. Come and follow me. Receive the forgiveness of your sins so that nothing worse may happen to you. What is worse than being left by your family and friends and loved ones alone with no one to help you and no one to care for you for 38 years? The answer is hell. 38 years on a mat does not compare to eternity in hell. And so Jesus finds the man and says, listen, sin no more. Come and trust me and, and follow me and come with me and nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus calling him into life. Jesus doesn't want him to gain his legs and lose his soul. 
And so Jesus is always saying, the point is always life. I'm coming to give you life. And we know this is here because John is saying, I'm writing so that you have a life. The goal is eternal life. I think sometimes we're so content with the physical blessings of the Lord and the things in which he does us. And God loves to pour out gifts on us. He just blesses us beyond compare. But the reality is, what a foolish thing it is to be satisfied with new legs but an old heart. And the man then uses his new legs to walk right into eternity in which you'd be separated from God forever. And let me ask you this. If Jesus gave you everything you ever wanted, but you missed Jesus, would you be satisfied? Because if Jesus gave you everything you ever wanted, but you didn't get Jesus, you would end up with nothing at all. You would still spend eternity separated from God in hell. Verse 15 even gets sadder. It's hard to imagine because the man does not respond by trusting and following Jesus. He responds by going away and telling the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. Do you catch that? He could have immediately said, okay, Jesus, I trust and follow you. And he becomes a disciple, but he doesn't do that. He immediately goes back because he's so bound and paralyzed by fear. And he reports to the religious leaders, listen, don't get upset with me. I only did it because of him. And I found out who he is. His name is Jesus. That's what he does to Jesus. That's how he responds to Jesus. And it's so different than the other stories we've seen. In John 4, the woman at the well, what does she do? She ran and tell everybody, I found a man who told me about my life. At the end of John 4, there's an official who his son was healed. And what does he do? He, his whole household becomes saved. In John 8, there's a blind man who's healed. And he has a confrontation with the religious leaders. And you know what he says? He rebukes them for not believing in Jesus. Yeah, this man does none of those things. He doesn't stand up against the religious leaders. He does not come and follow Jesus. He does not move toward Jesus. It's as if he has another paralysis. Not because he's unable to move, because he's unwilling to move. Verse 16 says this is the reason why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. We'll see more about that next week. This is the beginning of the rising hostility towards Jesus. But the reason the story becomes sadder is that the man was paralyzed here. Not physically, but by fear, because the religious leaders controlled him by fear. Jesus did not come just to give him new legs. He came to give him a new heart. And he walked away as dead as he's ever been. He walked away, headed in the direction of eternity separated from God and hell. And one of the questions I ask a lot this week is, well, <laughs> Jesus didn't have to do this on the Sabbath. He could have done it Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. Like he could have done it a lot of other days. And he didn't have to say to the guy on the Sabbath, pick up your mat. He knew that was going to be a problem. Why did he do it? Well, the reason that Jesus did this on the Sabbath and the reason he told the man to pick up a mat is because he was exposing through this man the lifeless bondage of this religious fear-based system. He was exposing the, the bondage that this man was in of his legalism. He was exposing the eternal tragedy of moving, listen, moving towards more death and moving away from life. I mean, the man's story is a tragedy. He comes face to face with the tender mercy and compassion and love of Jesus. He's standing there with Jesus who has come to give him life and life abundantly. He's healed and he's offered something better. He's offered eternal life. And yet he makes a choice to run back to this lifeless, fear-based religious system that had never done anything for him. They didn't love him. They didn't care about him. They had stepped over him. 
They didn't rejoice in his healing. They didn't even comment on his healing. They just wanted to bind him by more fear. And he uses his legs to walk back to a fear-based bondage and away from freedom and life like an abused spouse goes back to his abuser. He just continues to walk back towards death. Towards what had never done anything for him at all. In John 10, 10, it says the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. In the context there in John 10, that's not referring directly to the devil. It's referring to the religious leaders. The religious leaders have come to make you in bondage. They've come to take away your life. They are they're children of Satan, which, <laughs> which he calls them. But the reality is they have caused this fear in your life to keep you from enjoying the life of Christ. And so then I go back to the question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to become something new? Do you want to become something you're not? And the answer for this man is simple. No. He's glad to have his legs back. He doesn't want to become something new. He doesn't want to be transformed. He doesn't want to be changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's content with walking with his new legs straight in eternity from hell. He's afraid of the cost. He's afraid of the consequences. He's intimidated. He's scared. And so he simply walks away from the life that's been offered him. And so what does that mean for us? I think the simple lesson of John 5, because John is writing that we might have life, is this. I want to make sure you get this. As you leave this morning, the lesson is this, that we should never walk toward death when we can walk toward life. We should never make the choice to walk towards death when we can walk towards life. Well, how do we do that? We do that when we are thankful for all of the good things that God has given us and we rejoice in all the blessings we have and how abundant our life is, but we miss Jesus. That's how we do it. We just miss Jesus. We don't thank Jesus. We don't worship Jesus. We don't surrender to Jesus. We do it when we're so bound by our, our fear of the consequences or, or the fear of what it might cost us that we don't walk towards Jesus, that we don't give ourselves fully to Jesus. We're so bound by something, fear, anxiety, or the, the worry of the cost that we miss Jesus. And I think the primary goal of this text here is to show how many people miss life with Jesus because they're just content with temporal life. They miss Jesus because they're bound by the fear of what it might cost them or the consequences. And so what do they do? They spend all of their physical life walking towards death and missing the life that Jesus wants to give. But I think there's another application for believers. You realize every time you walk towards sin, you're choosing death over life. Every time you choose to go back to sin, you're choosing death over life. Every step of your life is a decision. Am I going to walk towards life or am I going to walk towards death? And this man is a picture of someone who goes back to the very thing that has never done anything for him. The thing that never gave him any life, never gave him any joy, never gave him any peace. It robbed him from all of those things and yet he goes back to it. And this is the joy, the peace, and the freedom, and the life that Jesus wants to give. Jesus has come to set you free. He's come to give you life. He has abundant life for you. And the decision of every moment of the day is, am I going to walk towards life, or am I going to walk towards death? I pray you choose life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.